you want to turn to Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to go back to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 11 down through verse 20. Solomon writes there, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens, and by his knowledge the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. And we'll stop there. And Father, we just ask you once again, Lord, that you'll graciously visit us and speak to us once again, Lord, and Thank you that you'll reveal yourself to us tonight as we gather together to hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll remind ourselves again, the book of Proverbs is written by the wisest man on earth outside of Jesus. He, he was the wisest, Solomon, and it's speaking to his adolescent son as he's getting ready to enter manhood. 21 times throughout the book of Proverbs, in the first nine chapters, he uses that tender phrase, my son. And three of the 21 are right here in this chapter three. And actually, it kind of helps because it gives us our little divisions on how we're going to divide this chapter up. So for instance, you have in verse one, it says, my son, do not forget my law. And then where we're at tonight, my son, verse 11, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. And the other one is down in verse 21. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Last week, we looked at the first 10 verses. What that's showing us there, the Lord is the crucial element. He is the vital element when it comes to wisdom. So we're always going to go back to the key to understanding Proverbs is Proverbs 1, verse 7, and that is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or of wisdom. So all true wisdom, it begins, but it not only begins there, it doesn't stop. It continues on with fearing God, with fearing Him. Because those that don't end that way, almost everybody's going to begin that way, but those that don't end that way don't end well when they tend to lose that fear of the Lord for whatever reason. You can just look at a lot of the kings that happened to. And a lot of the faith healers started off that way. A lot of them started off with a strong holiness message. God was using them, and then because of their popularity, and they just tend to get a lot of money, a lot of income came in, most of them started broke, and things just start falling apart towards the end of their life. And you also see that in the kings of like Asa, Hezekiah, Solomon, even Solomon himself, the wisest man that lived. You lose that fear of the Lord, and all the wisdom means absolutely nothing. Like I said, take God out of the equation, and everything falls apart. Verses 1 to 10, that's why it's emphasizing there. Verses 1 to 10 tell us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Tell us to fear the Lord and depart from evil and honor the Lord with all of your possessions. And that's just another way, we said last week, that's just another way of what Jesus said in the greatest commandment when they asked him what it was, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. When you trust God, when you make Him first, like we learned last week in the first 10 verses, you put the Lord number one in your life, 
What happens when you do that? You trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. You don't do what you want, what you think seems logical, what the world says. And the next thing you're going to find out if you do that is you're going to be having trials. You're going to be going through training and you're going to discover what chastisement's all about. And that's what we call the training of life, the trials of faith, the setbacks of life. That is the way that the wisdom of God is given to us through those trials, through chastisement. You all understand chastisement, it includes punishment for doing wrong in the sense of it's like a divine spanking so you learn better. But it also can just include God's just training us. It's not necessarily that you even did anything wrong. Job didn't do anything wrong for what all came on him, but God, in a sense, was training him and giving him wisdom through that. We're back to James 1, brother, encountered all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's the purpose of it. And he goes on to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it'll be given. So that wisdom is what we need to get through our trials, and that's what we actually gain going through trials. Because something that's a trial, one time you get some wisdom through that, and you can deal with it a whole lot better the next time it comes around. Because like, it says various trials. It's not just healing or financial. It's just all kinds of trials that come our way. When you step out in faith, and you're going to obey the Lord, and it seems like other Christians aren't doing the same thing, they're not doing what God seems to require you to do. And that's Psalm 73. Now, he's looking at the unregenerate, but it could just be someone that, whoever. And he's saying, I'll look at them, and my battle lost it. Because he says, I'm think, thinking, I'm doing all of this, and they're not. And they're growing fat and happy, and everything seems to be going well. And what he actually says there, I believe, is verse 14 in Psalm 73. He says, but for me, I'm trying to live according to God's ways. And he says, all day long I've been plagued, and every morning I'm chastened. He's like, man, this is what happens. And that's the way it works. And so when that starts happening to you, the temptation then is to what? It's to quit. It really is. That's when you have to ask God for the wisdom to get you through what you're going through to see who he is and what it is he's trying to teach you. And when that happens, when you do that and you get in a severe trial, we're getting back to started talking about Job. You'll be like Job. Because he gained the wisdom of who God is and his ways. The only way he could get that wisdom and that knowledge was how. He had to endure, I mean, tremendous suffering that God put him through. Not only endure it, but he didn't give up. And it was tough for him, wasn't it? And Job was able to say this. In the end, Job answered the Lord in Job 42 after he got through all that. It still wasn't over, but... God had spoken to him and it says, Job answered the Lord and said, well, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And you asked me, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? And Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. So he didn't have wisdom and knowledge at the beginning of what he went through. And he's raising all kinds of questions all through the book of Job. And he realizes, wait a minute, at the end, he puts his hand on his mouth. He said, I spoke a little too rashly about you, Lord, but now I have some wisdom. But he went on to say, he said, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. But he knows them now. 
Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. And here's what Job said. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. He says, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And before, I had this head knowledge, but now he's like, I got true wisdom and knowledge in my heart. I have truly seen you in your ways. I was raising questions about you, and I didn't understand things, but now I know some things that few people on earth know. And the only way that came was through him enduring that severe chastening and training that God put him through. And think about it, Job had to lose literally everything he had to get that insight and wisdom from the Lord. You could say he had to go through a literal hell on earth to obtain that vision that God gave him in the end of the almighty God and his ways. Let me ask you, was it worth it? Was it worth that he had to lose everything he had? So I'm saying to somebody that their possessions, their family, their health, when that just means everything to you at any cost, it wouldn't be worth it, would it? And they would have given up, I think. Your average person, given up. They would have listened to Job's wife, who spoke to him at the beginning. What did she say? She goes, look, he obviously hates you. What's she telling him to do? Curse him and die. That's what she told Job to do. He obviously, God hates you, curse him and die. So why don't you just curse him back? That's what she told him, curse God and die. Can you imagine that? And Job was gentle with his wife, but he was firm. And he said this to her. He said, you speak, my wife, as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from the Lord? And shall we not accept adversity? And it says in all this, it says, good old Job, he did not sin with his lips. Had the right attitude towards his trials and he benefited from it. That's at the beginning when all that took place, when his roof caved in on top of him and roof caved in on top of his children, too. So the book of Job is given to us to learn how to deal with trials, with testing, with chastening. Look here what it says in verses 11 and 12. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Now, this right here is very similar to what we have here in verses 11 and 12 to what was found in Job. Job's also considered wisdom literature, and it actually is the first book of the Old Testament they believe it was written. So if you would, put something there in Proverbs and just turn back a little ways into Job chapter 5. It says the same thing in a similar way, but not quite so. I want to look at it. Job chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Job 5, 17 to 19. What we have there, Eliphaz says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. I think this is correct, but you do have to watch when this discourse is going back between Job and his friends. Everything they say is not always correct. A lot of times, and I think it's the case here, most of the time it's correct, but it's misapplied towards Job. They'll take principles and they'll say, well, this has got to be what's happening to you, Job. Well, their principle may be true, but it, they're applying it to him. It doesn't always apply in all cases. And they're trying to say, hey, look, 
If you're suffering, it's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You had to do something wrong. They didn't understand all this. And Job didn't either. They're going back and forth. But I think in this case, what they're saying is right. And he's saying the man God chastens, look at verse 17, he is happy. And you're like, wow, that made me too happy lately to be chastened to the Lord. But he's saying he's happy and blessed. And what does God do? What does it say there that he does when he does that chastening, that correction? In verse 18, it says he does what? He bruises and he wounds. Now, I've never received either where they didn't hurt. <laughs> I remember back when we used to start football practice back when I was a grade school kid. You know, I used to think that was cool because initially those first few weeks of practice, you get bruises and they'd be all different colors all over your arms until you got kind of toughened up. But it hurt still, nonetheless, right? You get a wound, it's going to hurt. We need to see, though, that God only bruises and wounds us. It hurts. That's what it's saying there, but it's only for our benefit. And he never leaves us that way when he has to do that to us. There's times he does have to do that to us, but he doesn't leave us that way because it also says he bruises, but he does what? He binds up and he wounds, but he doesn't leave you that way. It says his hands will make you whole. Once Job had learned the lesson that God was trying to teach him, he didn't just leave Job a broke, because he had lost everything, childless, he'd lost all his children, mass of putrid sores. He didn't just leave him a broke, childless, mass of putrid sores, did he? He could have. He could have walked away from him after and all that and been like, man, I'm glad you got the message, Job. <laughs> just left him like that. But that's not what he does. He's not like that, is he, our Lord? And James tells us in James 5, he says, Behold, we count them blessed who endure. Trials he's talking about. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the intended end of the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, that's the new King James. I really, I kind of like King James the way it says it, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. I mean, that just even sounds better, doesn't it? <laughs> Some of the other versions will say that he is very compassionate and merciful, and that's him. He binds up and his hands make whole. And that's what happened with Job. It was rugged, but you get down in later on in chapter 42, that last chapter, and here's what it said. I mean, he put him through the ringer, but it says, now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, and a partridge and a pear tree. No, I didn't in there. But it did say 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons, three daughters. And it says about those daughters in all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after that, it said Job lived 140 years, saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. And so it says Job died old and full of days. That means he died a happy man. And all of that other, that training, he got a vision of God and who he was. And that was just all a distant memory. Amen. And so people in here now, it may seem like, man, is this ever going to end? It couldn't be any worse. I'm sure that's what Job thought more than once. And it just will be a distant memory for you if you will endure and continue to trust the Lord because God is faithful. So that's the point. He's not out to destroy us. That's what James says. We've got to see the intended end of the Lord. He told Israel that in Jeremiah 29. 
Here you are, you're over in this foreign land, but I have good thoughts towards you. Just make the best of your chastisement and I will bring you back after this 70 years. After your chastisement's over, I will bring you back. Gladly, because you're my children. I love you. I mean, that's the way it works, isn't it? That's the way it works with our own kids. He doesn't want to destroy us, do us harm, or make our lives unbearable. It just sometimes seems that way. So if you go back to Proverbs 3, here he is. Proverbs 3, verse 11, back to speaking lovingly to his son. My son, he's saying, just listen to me. He's saying, just as I love you and correct you, that's what the Lord does. Just take it in the right way and in the right spirit. That's what he's telling him. Because here's what he's saying here in these first few verses, 11 and 12. Because when afflictions, difficulties, trials, all the things that God does to train us, when they come our way, you know what the biggest temptation to do is? What he says here in verse 11, to despise and detest. That's the word I have in New King James, his correction. And that word for despise means you reject. Some of the versions will say that, to reject. It means you just, you want nothing to do with someone or something that's happening to you. you and he's saying, don't reject or despise the chastisement of the Lord. And that word for detest means to resent or to loathe or grow weary. It has the idea of this emotional response of repulsion, like, I've had enough of this, is kind of what it's saying. He's saying, don't do that. My son, do not despise, reject the chasing of the Lord, or don't detest his correction. And Charles Spurgeon, I've read this sermon of his, and he had several ways that he says we can despise God's correction. He gave several. I'm not going to give all of the ones he gave, but there was a couple that I kind of caught my attention I'd like to share. And he said one way we despise God's correction, which he said we should not do, is when we murmur at it. When God's chasing you, trying to get your attention, trying to train you, things aren't going the way you'd like them to, however way that is, and you start saying, why is this happening to me? Why should I be chastised? What have I done to be afflicted and chastised? And Spurgeon said, you know, most people, they don't have the boldness to just come right out and say that to anyone. But it's more, they say it within themselves, it becomes an attitude of the heart. Don't say things, I am the man who has seen much affliction. You'll say that within yourself. I am the man who is more tried and troubled than others. No one is ever chastised as I am. That's what Spurgeon says. You'll kind of say that on the inside. And if we're honest, all of us will have to say we thought that at times. When you're in the midst of God dealing with you, it seems we look around and when you're in the midst of a heavy situation, it seems like your situation is the worst and it just seems like everybody around you seems to be happy. And things are going well, even though it's really not in reality. It's usually not that way. Everybody's kind of got their trials to one degree or another. How do you deal with that? What's the solution to dealing with that? When God's putting you through anything for whatever reason, there's got to be a certain humility about us. And we've got to recognize that God is God and he's sovereign and he's in control. And just realize this punishment, if it's punishment, it's chastisement, correction, we just have to realize that it is for our good. I tend to be the kind of thing, I like things running smooth, whether it's in my house, wherever, things, I like things running smooth, and when they don't tend to, my first thought is, what have I done? God's after me for something. I don't like this, and I want to change it as quick as I can. And that's just time to just slow down and have a little humility about you. What is it, Lord, you're trying to tell me through this? 
It could just be a trial, but it could be, hey, you've done something, I'm trying to get you straightened out on this. You gotta slow down and let him show you and then be able to deal with it. Spurgeon says this, this is what we should say, it is well, O Lord, just art thou in thy chastening, for I have sinned. Righteous art thou in thy blows, for I need them to fetch me near to thee. For if thou dost leave me uncorrected and unchastised, I, a poor wanderer, must pass away to the gulf of death and sink into the pit of eternal perdition. Now Spurgeon, I started to take out all of these and now, but I kind of like the way that sounded. That's what he said. Those are his words. And so a lot of times what we don't like, we may not realize it, but God had just left us alone and not put us in that thing we went through that as miserable as it was. We don't know where we would have ended up if he had just let us go. And that's what Spurgeon's saying. We need to be thankful because we tend to wander. We are still sheep and sheep tend to wander. And we need the Lord to get us back where we need to be, don't we? We just need that more, I think, than we realize. And the second thing Spurgeon, he also said is that we despise God's chastening when we say there's no use in it. And I thought that was good what he said about that. So here's the way he described that, because I think this can happen a lot of times when good things happen to us in life. We have testimonies here all the time. Received a financial blessing, spared us from an accident, something turned out well that looked bad. We want to give a testimony that God in his providence intervened and helped me out. But when things turn out bad, we lose money on a job, we get a flat tire, have to walk 10 miles to get it fixed, or things just aren't working out for us in whatever way, we don't want to attribute that to God's providence or chastening a lot of times. No one's given testimonies that I went through such and such and God really helped me learn something. I haven't had too many testimonies along those lines. Spurgeon said this. I thought this was good. He said, suppose we should lose $500. Would that not be providence? Or suppose our business should fail. Would that not be providence? He means God's divine providence. It is always providence when it is a good thing. But why is it not a providence when it does not happen to be just as we please? He says, surely it is so. For if the one thing be ordered by God, so is the other. It is written, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And Spurgeon says, but I question whether or not that is not despising the chastening of the Lord when we set a prosperous providence before an adverse one. But we say, of what use will such a trial be to me? I cannot see that it can by any possibility be useful to my soul. And Spurgeon says, well, now you are despising the chastening of the Lord when you say that it is no use. He says, no child thinks of the rod of much value. Anything in the house is of more use than that rod in his opinion. And if you were to ask the child which part of the household furniture could be dispensed with, he would like chairs, tables, and everything else to remain. But that, he would say, the rod, he does not think of any good whatever the child despises the rod. I mean, I've never had any of my kids, you pull the rod out and be like, oh, great. He just made my day. And that's what he's saying. But in a way, God is, isn't he? What's the solution to that? Where you say, what good is this chasing? It's a lot of good. If you would turn to Hebrews 12, we're going to look at a couple things here. What's the solution to that attitude? It's just me. I know no one else would have problems with stuff like that, but... Hebrews 12, and the first thing we want to see, because Hebrews 12 talks about chastening, 
we think of chastisement as being no use. Why does it have to be like this? And the first thing we need to see is that it could always be worse. <laughs> Couldn't it? And so look down there in verse 3. That's where it starts off. It says, For consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin, is what he says. I don't know anybody in here that's striven to the point of bloodshed under God's chastening hand. But Jesus, he did have to shed blood, didn't he? I mean, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And in receiving our chastisement, he shed his blood. And it was painful, too. What we also need to realize, no matter, and I'm not minimizing anybody's trials, because I understand we've got people going through severe trials. But, you know, there are people, he said, here, you haven't shed unto blood. There are people, as we speak, that are resisting unto blood and in a lot of pain and in a lot of suffering that never lets up. The point is, one thing we need to see is it's all, in a sense, relative. Now, I understand physical suffering and chastisement is not necessarily even always the worst. Sometimes mental can be bad. You think about it, David, as far as I know, he never had a hand physically laid on him to where he was hurt in any way physically. And yet he's constantly on the run. But the Psalms, which is where everybody gets their comfort when they're in affliction, that's where you go. And that old thing about sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me or threats or whatever else. I'm saying ask David about that because he's in a lot of distress in writing about it. So the first thing is it could be worse. And the second thing is, and if you look through verses 5 through 9, Look what it says. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you. And it's the exhortation we read in Proverbs. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastisement of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, this is what we want to focus in on. We have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? We have to have an attitude like our own fathers. I'm saying, my dad, the way it was with him, you didn't give him the right response. You were just going to get some more of the same thing. I mean, you had to show some respect and be willing to submit to what he was trying to discipline you through. And that's what he's saying here. We've got to humbly submit. And how much more should we readily submit to the father of spirits who sends chastisement or training or whatever? He's sending in our way, we have to understand and we have to trust that God is sending in our way that somehow we need it whether we understand it or not. Isn't that really what it's telling us there in verse 9? Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily, eagerly be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? There is always a purpose. That's what we have to see. God, our Father, loves us. There is always a purpose for our chastening, our training. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 10 through 11. For they indeed, our fathers, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But God does it. Why? For our profit. There's a purpose to it. That we may be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present 
but painful. We're back to those wounds and bruises. Nevertheless, it says, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness in those that have been trained by it. There's a purpose and there is always good fruit produced. If you're his child and God is your father, it will always produce good fruit, even though the fruit is produced through pain. That's what he's saying there, isn't it? No chastisement is joyous. You don't get fruit produced through joy. It's through the purging, through the pain. That's John 15, too. I'll just use my own self as an example, I guess, just so that way nobody thinks I'm picking on them. I remember back in the mid-80s, I think it was, I was working in Lexington, a construction job, and uh, doing new construction painting, and I worked like a dog 60 hours a week. I mean, I worked more hours than I care to remember. I'd fall asleep driving home an hour there, over an hour there, and an hour back. And my income at the end of the year was less than the poverty level. I was making below poverty wages. I was paying my help back then. I think I was paying the guys working for me six, I was making less than six bucks an hour running a job or whatever. It's terrible. <laughs> Finally, God spoke to me. This is why this is happening to you, my son. <laughs> it's because, it, I think I've told you this before, you have to bear with me again. I was making so little money that for me to put like a dollar or less in the offering boxes, it's like humiliating. I'm like, how am I going to do that? I thought, plus, Brother Hamilton seems like he's doing all right. I need this worse than he does. That was my reasoning. And God finally dealt with me through a message I heard one time. That is faulty reasoning. And that's why you don't have anything, my son. It was painful. It was a whole year of that. Couldn't pay my rent. My rent was only $50 a month. That's embarrassing. That's terrible. But I learned a lesson. <laughs> and the lesson I learned was I made a commitment to God. I'll give it whether I ever think I have it to give again. That's just a commitment I made between me and the Lord. So I learned that lesson. That's the way God trained me. It was painful. But in the end, in a sense, you could say it brought forth good fruit. Going through it wasn't a pleasant experience. So nobody's going to raise their hand and say, I praise God, I'm living in poverty this year. And he's training me. I want to give a testimony. <laughs> Everybody be looking around like, wait a minute, what church did you come out of? What hole did you crawl out of? That's what we're learning here, isn't it? Isn't that what God does a lot of times? These things we don't like. That's the way he gives us wisdom. That's the way we learn. But if you go back to Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3, look again. My son, verse, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Verse 12, for whom the Lord, what? Loves. Those are the ones he corrects, just as a father, the son. Not who he puts up with, but whom he delights in. The third thing, and probably the most important is, we need to see that God's correction, his training, his putting us through trials, whatever you want to call it, is a sign that he loves us. And it's hard to see that when you're right in the middle of it, because what is it? feel like. It feels like he's angry with you. It feels like loss. It feels like God has abandoned us, doesn't it? But it really is not. It's just that's why we need to see this here. That's why he says, don't forget. Don't despise. Do not detest. Remember whom the Lord loves. Those are the ones that he corrects. Sure sign of evidence, isn't it, that he loves you? Just the opposite of what the devil will tell you. A.W. Tozer said this, about God. He said, he remembers our frame and knows that we are dust. He may sometimes chasten us. It is true, but even this he does with a smile. 
the proud, tender smile of a father who is bursting with pleasure over an imperfect but promising son or daughter who is coming every day to look more and more like the one whose child he is. Now, you think, well, that sounds awful good, but that's exactly what we have here in verse 12. Just as a father, the son, he chastens the son whom he delights. He's bursting in pleasure because he realizes, I'm working character in this boy or daughter. And they're going to be something when it's all over with. And that's the way God looks at us. So we tend to think when things happen and don't go the right way, that he hates us, he's disgusted with us because the word However it comes, a lot of times it points out our faults or corrects and rebukes us. And I'm telling you, it's hard to take, especially if you're one of these people that has a perfectionist mentality. And you don't want to think of it yourself as like, I'm less than perfect. I'm less than not doing what God wants me. It becomes hard to take, doesn't it? When God corrects you or anyone corrects you for that matter, it just makes it hard to take. And a lot of people... And our groups, I think, tend to be that perfectionist way. And, and that's all right, but we need to be willing to humble ourselves when God's saying, you just aren't really where you think you are. You're heading through life thinking you're okay, and all of a sudden, these personal relationships explode for whatever reason, and they just bring out things in you that you didn't think were there. And here you thought, man, I think I'm pretty deep. And this happens, and the way you're dealing with it, and you realize I'm not even an inch deep. If truth be known, and I got a lot of work to get done, right? Like I said, I'm talking about myself. And so what happens when that becomes and you kind of see yourself for who you are and you're not what you thought you were, that can tend to discourage you and depress you, can't it? We're not going to turn back there, but that's why the writer of Hebrews 12 later on goes on to say, he starts saying, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. He says, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by them. And then at the end, towards the end of that section, he says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down. Because that's what happens when you're like, God, this, I'm not what I thought I was. I may not even be saved. And that's what he's telling you. You got to get over that and look at it like God loves you. He's just trying to help you out. It says, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And make straight paths deal with what he's showing you for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. We've got to get back to that is the intention God has for us. He wants to heal us, get us back on the straight paths, not leave us over there where we fell off the path down in the ditch with a dislocated leg. He wants to get you back up on the right path. Walking on two firm legs in the straight and narrow way. So that's the only path that's going to lead to life, isn't it? The path of obedience. And obedience does what? When you obey, that's what we have in Romans 6. As you continue to obey, it produces holiness, or you could say character. And God producing character, godly character in us, is the greatest gift that he could give us. And you think, man, I'm believing for a new car. No, really, what you need is godly character more than a new car. That's what the Bible says. Conforming us to the image of his son. Because it will help us not only in the end, when we have to face him on the day of judgment, but that godly character will help us navigate this life. And I read this where this executive in the Midwest, who he's known for being able to hire good people, his ability to hire good people, and he said, this is the method. He said, this is the criteria I use to pick good people. 
He says, first I go for their character. I pick those with good character. Then intelligence. And third, experience. And they said, most executives do just the opposite. They're looking for experience and intelligence. And this guy says, no, a really bright person will pick up experience quickly. But character is what you need. Because you could have the brightest, most experienced person. If they don't show up for work on time, found this out from my father-in-law, or they're not there, they're never there when you need them, and you got a big job coming up, what good are they? Whereas a person with character, they will be there on time. Is godly character God's trying to produce in us? It'll help us navigate through life better too, won't it? It really will. And he takes such pains to produce godly character in us, not because he hates us even though it seems that way. It's like I said, it's because he takes pleasure in us and wants to be proud of us. C.S. Lewis, I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan, but he has written a few things that are worth mentioning. And he wrote this. He said, an artist, a great artist, he doesn't take much trouble over a picture he doodles to amuse a child. And I had an aunt that was like that. Man, she was really talented. And when we were little kids, we'd go up and visit them, or it was down at the time of living in Columbus, go down to Cincinnati. And she was so clever. She'd draw these little things and hand them to us on a piece of paper. Well, she wasn't worried if everything was just absolutely perfect. And they were great. I mean, I'd look at those things. Man, I wish I could do what you just did. But she wasn't taking a lot of time on that. But Lewis says when an artist is working on his great work of art, he'll take endless trouble. He says he'll rub and he'll scrape off and start over for the 10th time. And he says if that art piece of artwork was a person, it would be crying out with pain. Would you quit rubbing on the same place? You're tearing me up and starting over. That's what he said. And he made this shrewd observation, I thought. I like this. He says, when we complain about our sufferings, we complain about our suffering. We are not asking for more love, but less we complain about our sufferings. We're not asking for more love, but less. We're asking God not to take us so seriously. Think about that. He keeps messing with us when we tend to just wish he'd leave me alone. Well, no, we don't really, do we? We're asking God not to take us so seriously. So when God brings you into situations that bring out the worst in you, rejoice. It proves his love. If none of that was going on in your life, you know what it would prove? If you didn't have any of that going on in your life, as hard as it is, it would prove you're rejected. Isn't that what it says in Hebrews 12? He that is without chastening is illegitimate. That's the new King James. They changed the old one, the B word. But anyways, moving on down. Whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Verse 12, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. And then we have verses 13 to 18. And that tells us how blessed the man is who finds wisdom because he endures chastisements. Look what it says there in verses 13 to 15. Happy, blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man that gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, her gain than fine gold, and she is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare to her. Oh, we sing that song, except we put Lord in there, right? Instead of wisdom, Lord, you are more precious than silver, more gold. All that I can desire doesn't compare to you, and that's what that's saying, isn't it? Finding wisdom, that's what it says in verse 
13. Happy is the man who finds. That means you've got to search for it. And the man who gains understanding. That happens going back to the verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That's how you're going to gain wisdom. Lean not to your own understanding. And he's saying here, what you find and what you gain, he compares that to the greatest treasures that there are on earth. Silver, gold, and precious stones. And Solomon's saying, there is nothing, you take anything you can possibly desire, nothing compares to the wisdom God gives you. We're back to, that's what Job found out, didn't he? And he proved that, that that's true, <laughs> didn't he? <laughs> he lost it all. He gave it all up to get that wisdom that God gave. And Job, in the book of Job, he says, here's the problem, and I think this is with all of us. We really don't appreciate the value of wisdom. We don't. No one sees it as something to be treasured, the wisdom of God, as above all else. And he also says that's something that you can't buy. Or you're not going to discover the wisdom that God gives. It has to be a revelation that he gives. And I want us to look at that, if you don't mind, please. If you would just turn back to Job 28. Job 28. And beginning in verse 12 through the end. And Job asked this question. He says, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And look, I said, we don't appreciate it. That's what he says. Man does not know its value. Nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire, neither gold nor crystal. He says can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears, but only God understands its way and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and an apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed. He searched it out. And to man, he said, you want to know how to get this wisdom? We're back to Proverbs 1.7. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, he says, that is understanding we don't value wisdom, I don't think like we should. I don't think I do. I don't think I have, and I don't want to say I won't in the future, but that's really what he's saying here, isn't it? And that's what Solomon's saying in Proverbs. The Queen of Sheba, though, she did realize the value of God's wisdom. She was a wealthy lady, and she was. And she had her eyes opened to see that the wisdom that was given to Solomon, that was given to him from God, was more valuable than anything else that could have been on earth. I would like us to see that too, if you don't mind. And for that, you have to turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 9. And the first eight verses. 2 Chronicles 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, 
she came to Jerusalem to detest Solomon with hard questions. Having a very great retinue, camels that bore spices, gold in abundance, and precious stones. She's rich. She's filthy rich. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And so Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, their apparel, his entranceway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about not his wealth. What was it she heard that drew her there about your words and your wisdom? However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with mine own eyes. And indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are those your servants who stand continually before you. Not because they're blessed with how wealthy he is, which he was, could give them anything they needed. But he said, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who stand continually before you. And what? Hear your wisdom. I'm saying she saw the value. Blessed be the Lord your God who delights in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord your God, because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, and precious stones. There were never any spices such as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. But what was it? <laughs> what was it that impressed her most of all? She's like, there's nothing on earth that compares. She's saying what Proverbs 3 is saying, right? Nothing. Your men are blessed because they are hearing your wisdom. And we have it right here in our lap. And not only that, our Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke 11, he said this, he says, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and a greater than Solomon is here. She's telling them, you people, I am here and you're acting like you could care less about me and what I say and my words. And he's saying that woman is going to rise up in judgment against you all because you heard the wisdom of God, not from Solomon, but from one greater than Solomon. And you don't care. Israel turned their back on him, didn't they? They didn't take him for what he is. That's a warning for us, isn't it? It's an admonition. It's also an encouragement. We need to take advantage of the wisdom of God that he's given us. And Jesus said, how valuable are his words? I'm asking how valuable are the words of the Lord Jesus to our soul? He said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore, Jesus said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And on and on it goes. That's what we need to see. So back to Proverbs 3. He goes on after those first few verses, 13 to 15, and verses 16 to 18. Wisdom's pictured as a woman, a queen sitting on her throne, holding out her hands, full of the benefits of wisdom. And he says what? What does he say in verse 16? Length of days is in her right hand. Well, what's in your right hand is more important than what's in your left hand. He's saying that's the greatest thing. 
length of days is in her right hand and goes on to say in her left hand are riches and honor. Those are the things Solomon didn't ask for. And God says, but I'll give you all of that because you didn't ask for it. Length of days just means like we talked last week, a full life. We don't aim for wealth and honor, but when God gives us wisdom and we're following him wholly and obeying those first 10 verses, he adds it. That's what God does. I mean, Christians generally are going to prosper in their own way. That doesn't mean you got three Cadillacs and three houses or like I was watching these guys talking about uh, televangelists, how they need to have $50 million jets to fly so they don't have to stop and get fuel. Also, we don't want to have to ride in airlines with the common people because all these doped up people are so full of demons and all that. I'm thinking, really? And you're an evangelist? I'm like, to me, that would be like a prime opportunity. Doped up people with demons. That's what Jesus came to minister to, isn't it? That's not what God's talking about there, is he? No, but he'll bless you to where you'll have all your needs met and you'll prosper in that way. In verse 18, it says there, she is, this woman is a tree of life, lady wisdom, to those who take hold of her. Happy are all who retain her. A tree of life. That's going back to Genesis 2. Through what he's saying is we lost access, man did, to the tree of life back in Genesis 2. And he's saying you can get it back, holding on to the words of life, the wisdom of Proverbs, the wisdom that we've received through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're back to having the words of life. And that's what we have to get us through until Revelation 2.7 and Revelation 22 says there will come a time when we will partake of the real tree of life. This words of life we have here, this wisdom from Solomon is what will get us. It's provisional in the sense it will get us to that tree of life. But we have to take hold of it. Isn't that what it says, verse 18? She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her, of wisdom. And happy are all those who retain her. Finally, we have verses 19 to 20. And what are they telling us? Look what it says. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens by his knowledge the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew or the rain. And here's what he's saying here to us. If the Lord, who by his great and infinite wisdom and power was able to create the earth and all of its intricate laws and creatures. And if you want to know what that's all about, just go and read Psalm 104. Psalm 104, it's all about God's creation and how he has everything working together. 104.24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions, this great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. I mean, Psalm 104, it talks about God and his wisdom. He's made the sea so they stop at the shore. They don't just keep rushing over the earth where everybody's drowned all the time. It talks about everything from that to where you have the goats living up in the high hills to where you have the rock badgers that nobody probably ever sees living up in the high cliffs. But God in his wisdom feeds them all, gives water to them all. He set the sun and the moon, everything in their course. Everything just works perfectly. God in his wisdom is what he's saying there. And he goes on to say, what he's telling us, if he has done that, created this world, all that's in the heavens, we can safely trust him in his power and his wisdom to guide us through this life, as dark as it is. But look at that verse 20. It says, by his knowledge, the depths were broken up, and by his knowledge, clouds dropped down the dew. 
So rain comes from the wisdom of God. Man in his best days can't duplicate rain. And then it's something that we take for granted, isn't it? Especially in America, especially in Kentucky. We got rain coming out our ears. We haven't had really a big drought, I don't think, since 88, have we? I don't, that was a bad drought that year. I don't think we've really had one since then. It's been years. And I just want to share with you this. I read this and I thought this was really good. John Piper wrote this. It was a Thanksgiving years back about rain in the Middle East. Listen to this. He says, picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and animals supplied with water. But if the crops are to grow and the family is to be fed from month to month, water has to come on the fields from another source. From where? Well, the sky. The sky? Water will come out of the clear blue sky? He says, well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 28 million cubic feet of water, which is 206 million gallons, which is 1,650,000,000 pounds. That's how much it weighs. We're talking about one square mile, one inch. It would weigh 1,650,000,000 pounds. He writes, that's heavy. So how does it get up in the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up there by evaporation. Really? That's a nice word. What's it mean? It means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. Oh, I see. Then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? The water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between 100 thousandths and 10 thousandths centimeters wide. He says that's small, and it is. What about the salt? Salt? Yes. The Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That would kill the crops. What about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. Oh, so the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea and takes out the salt and then carries it for 300 miles and then dumps it on the farm. Well, it doesn't dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles the billion pounds of water down in little drops. And that was the end of what I had to read. That's God and his wisdom when you put it that way. I thought that was a good way of putting it all. I thought I couldn't put it any better. I'm not even going to try. I'll just read you what he said. But that's something we take for granted, what happens with all of that. And they don't take it for granted over there. They water's in a scarcity. What's Solomon telling us here in verses 19 and 20? If the sovereign, all-powerful God by his wisdom can work that wonder where he sends rain down on the crops like he does in Israel, then he surely in his all-powerful wisdom can do what he's already said he would do in this chapter. He can direct our paths. He can heal our bodies, supply all our needs, and he can give us the exact amount of chastisement in his wisdom that we need to be conformed to the image of his son. And why will he do all that? Why will God do all of that for us? Because he loves us. Amen. My son, do not despise or daughter the chastening of the Lord, nor detest 
his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we ask you, Lord, that you will help us, Lord, to recognize when we are being chastised, things don't go our ways or trials come, that you're only doing that in love and it doesn't disqualify us from being your sons and your daughters. You're just trying to do a work in us and perfect us to bring us to the image of your son. And you're only doing it for our profit, for our good. I just ask, Lord, you'll help to remind us all of that. And to not get discouraged when things seem to be a long trial and not going our way, but that we can make straight paths for our feet because your end, just like with Job, you have good intentions for us, Lord, and that will be our end. Just ask you to clearly show us that and help us to remember that in Jesus' name. Amen.